The story is told of a woman who received a phone call at work that her daughter was sick with a fever. And so she left the office and she stopped by the pharmacy to get some medication. And uh, upon returning to her car, she noticed that in her haste, she accidentally locked her keys in the car. She went back and used the phone and called the babysitter and told her what was going on and was kind of stymied as to what to do. And the babysitter said, well, you know what, see if you can find a clothes hanger and maybe you can just kind of jimmy the door open. So she looked around and sure enough found an old uh, coat hanger and opened it up and started to jim- try to get inside and she couldn't do it and she became frustrated and, she, and she, she bowed her head and she said, Lord, you know, please send someone to help me. And within 10 minutes or so, an old rusty car pulled up with a dirty, greasy, bearded man who was wearing an old biker skull cap on his head and the woman thought, great, th- this is who you sent to help? And uh, although she was desperate, she she asked and she was grateful. And the man got out of his car and asked if he could do something to help her. And she explained what was going on and uh, that her daughter was sick, that she ran in the pharmacy, came back out, locked her keys in the car, and she was trying to get in. And he said, well, here, give me that hanger. And within like 30 seconds, he had popped the, the door open. And she said, oh, that's so great. You're such a nice man. And he looked at her and said, you know what, lady, I'm, I'm not a nice man. I just got out of prison today. I was in prison for five years for Grand Theft Auto. I've only been out for about an hour. And she went over to him, hugged him again, and she looked up sobbing, and she praised God saying, God, thank you for sending me a professional. (laughs) You know, there's a woman with an attitude of gratitude. You know, and that story makes for a perfect introduction to Luke's account of a woman he met who expressed a similar attitude of gratitude. And if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, and starting with verse 36, we read of this woman's account and why she was so grateful and why she lived with a continuous attitude of gratitude. In Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 36, we pick up the account where we're told, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In order to better understand this passage, we need to turn back to Matthew's account, which contains added insight. And if you go back to Matthew chapter 11, we'll see some added insight that will really give us a better backdrop and an understanding of what's going on in this particular scene that we've just read. But in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, Matthew records the words of Jesus at the time. Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou dost hide these things from the wise and intelligent, And have revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. You know, the discourse immediately followed Jesus' answered, if you recall, to John the Baptist's questions that he sent his disciple to ask Jesus, are you the one that we've been waiting for, or should we look for another of a similar kind? You know, are you the one? And if you recall from our last message, John had doubts about Jesus' identity because Jesus wasn't doing the things that John thought he would do. He had prophesied that not only Jesus would come and that he would heal and that he would open the eyes of the blind and the deaf would hear and the lame would walk and the dead would be raised. But he said that there would also be judgment that would take place. And in Isaiah 61, you can read about the judgment of God that will take place at some time here on this earth. But he was saying that, you know, he didn't really understand what God was doing. And if you remember, Jesus' answer to him was empirical evidence as well as scriptural. And that was at that very moment, he began to heal people of all their different afflictions. And he said to them, go back and tell John. And he quoted four or five different passages of the Old Testament. Go and tell him that what you saw fulfilled what God had said would take place. And so don't doubt any longer that he is the one. And he went on to say, and blessed are all of us who do not stumble over him. And what he meant was, blessed are all of us who don't get confused by the way that God does things because it's not the way we want him to do things. And so often in life I meet so many people who are so troubled by what it is that God is doing because if it was up to you or to me, we wouldn't be going through any of that. He said, but blessed are those who don't stumble because of God's ways. And what he was basically reinforcing was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You know, to trust in the Lord. With all of your heart and don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways to acknowledge him and he'll set your path straight. If you're troubled, if you're going through something right now and you go, you know what, this isn't my, this isn't my will. It's not my game plan. It wasn't part of my one-year plan, five-year plan, ten-year plan. I mean, it was nowhere to be found on any of these plans. And it's like, but God, why is it happening? He's saying, hey, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And what John had kind of slipped in some ways of trying to understand, okay, God, I, I, I've read your word. I've, I've, I've been the one who told people that judgment was coming. Judgment hasn't arrived. And, you know, what, did I miss something? And that's why we need to understand the full counsel of the word of God. And that's why I'm so troubled by sometimes topical, you know, by, well, they're called topical Bible studies, but in essence, sometimes they're not. They, they use a verse and then we talk about everything other than what the counsel of God is. And there's nothing wrong with taking a subject but going to a concordance and finding every scriptural reference that has to maybe do with the subject and then going through it. And that, you know what? That's a Bible study that's digging in what everything that God has to say about worry or anger or lust or, or fear or doubts or any of that. You know, dig in everything and, and get the full counsel of God so we've got a good handle and understanding of what it is that God's doing. But at the end of the day, he says, you know, even when we don't understand him, to trust him because his ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't ours. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so far God's thoughts are above us. And he has chosen to clearly reveal those thoughts in his word as well as the spirit of God who resides in every person who has repented of sin, trusted in Christ as their Lord and their Savior. We have the ability to know the mind of God because it's been revealed to us. And so as we go through and we look at this, we begin to understand that Jesus goes on, we're told in Matthew's account, to extend an invitation to all who desire to come to him. For in him we find rest for our souls. Literally, we find, he says, peace with God. And as he's preaching and as he's, as he's sharing the messages of God, he's saying to people who are listening at that moment in time, if you're troubled by what's going on in life, come to me and I will give you rest. If you have no peace and you have guilt and you're troubled by all the things of life, come to me and literally I will give you my peace. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace, give I to you, but as the Father has given me peace, I give to you. And God's peace is so much better than a temporary truce that we may have on this side of eternity. God's peace Our peace with God through Jesus Christ is not only for now, but for all of eternity. So he goes through and we go back to Luke chapter 7 and it gives us a better understanding of what's taken place here. Where in Luke, uh, inspired by the Spirit of God, he records the account of a woman who found peace with God, literally found rest for her soul. But before we look specifically at her life, look at verse 36 where, where we find a wealth of information. Notice it says, now one of the Pharisees, 
was requesting Jesus to dine with him. Now, what's fascinating to me about this is we've already learned and we've come to know by this time that the Pharisees were openly hostile towards Jesus. They heard him say that he had the authority over the Sabbath, a day that was established by God. Therefore, Jesus was, was claiming equality with God, and that ruffled their feathers. He said, since you know God established the day, he can also enforce the rules. And he's saying that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I have authority over that day established by God. And they looked at him like, what? What are you saying? And if that wasn't enough, on the next Sabbath, the following Sabbath, he took a man with a withered hand and he healed him in the midst of the, uh, of the, of the uh, synagogue and said, look, you know what? Come, you know, and, and I'm going to heal you on the Sabbath so that I can show them who I am, irrefutable evidence in front of everybody. Come up here. I'm going to heal you. Oh, who do you think you are? Well, obviously I'm one who has authority over the Sabbath. I also can heal a man with a withered hand. Uh, You know, I'm God in your presence. Emmanuel, God is with us. You know, are are you catching on yet? And instead of catching on, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that these men were filled with rage and plotted against him. And we find that in the passage that we studied in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. They were filled, can you imagine they were filled with rage and they plotted against him for healing someone on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, you know, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So with all that in mind, stop and think about something. A Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner. Why? I'll tell you why. Because he wanted to set him up again. It became evident as we look at this, but the amazing thing to me was, and Jesus accepted the invitation. And I'm sitting there going, I'm in, I'm in my study, I'm looking at this, I'm looking at something, but, but why in the world would he go? He knows they hate him. He knows they're setting him up. Every time they get an opportunity, they ask him a question to try to trick him, to trap him, to get him to do something that, you know, they would believe would be, ha, 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 we got you. And I'm thinking, why did he go? And you know what God said? Chuck, you got an awful, dirty heart. It's like, what? It's like, what do you, why wouldn't I go? See, what happened was, I, I was convicted, like, I'm not going to that house. Somebody hates my guts trying to set me up. They want to see me trip and fall. I'm not going to dinner at their house. Thanks, but you know what? No thanks. And it was like I was convicted of my own sinful heart. Because what I recognized was that God is saying, Chuck, why wouldn't I go? Think about it. Why did I come here? Well, in the first verse, it came to my mind, Luke 19.10. Well, Lord, you came here to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, Chuck, where do you think I'm going to find him? I'm going to a perfect place. I'm going to a guy's house who's lost. I went, oh, good thinking, Lord. I mean, seriously, it's like sometimes you just got to go, wow, that's a great idea. It's like, wow, you know, I'm going, and think about it. He said, you know what, and stop and think about something even bigger than that. I came to this earth to seek and to save that which was lost. If I came to earth, why wouldn't I go to his house? His house is just a microcosm of a bigger picture. The whole of humanity is lost. His house is no different than your house used to be, than somebody else's house is now, than anybody's house. It's like, why wouldn't I go there? You think, I don't know they hate me? Listen, the whole world is at enmity with God. When I came to earth, you were at enmity with me. You hated me. When I demonstrated my love for you, you were yet a sinner who hated me and wanted nothing to do with me. So what makes you think you're any better than this Simon, the Pharisee, who invited me to his house regardless of his motives because what man means for evil, God will make good out of it. And I went, whoa, man, I've got so much to learn. And it's so exciting every time some new truth is revealed. It's like you just want to run around. You can't wait to show up and tell everybody. That's good stuff. 
And it's like, you know, Jesus wasn't a welcome guest. He was invited. He wasn't welcome. He went anyway. And the reason that he went to this man's house was so that he and everybody else who was there and would be onlookers would know how much he loved them. And now the question is, you go, well, Chuck, how do you know the guy's heart wasn't right? You know, remember, remember, judge not lest ye be judged. I was like, wait a minute. Well, his actions demonstrated. And we realize that as we go through the account later on, Jesus reveals his heart and his actions. But what we do know historically, culturally, is that when you were invited to somebody's house, the first thing that they did, they met you at the door, they put their hand on your shoulder, and they gave you a kiss of peace on both cheeks. You know what? Glad to have you here. Big hug, kiss on both cheeks. Oh, by the way, you know what? Stop right now. Servant would be at the door. And they would take the water, the basin of water, they would wash the feet because all that was on there was a slab of, uh, of leather on the bottom with a strap that went over the top. Every road was dirt, so their feet were always dusty and grimy. Took them in. It was like, you know how you feel that, like when we have the sand and winds, that just that grimy feeling that you have? Well, you know, they came in and they just wiped, they, they would wipe and wash the feet. And the last thing that they would do is they would, they would take oil, common olive oil, whatever, and they would put it on a cloth and they would wipe the person's face so that they felt refreshed, they felt welcomed. And we know that this guy did none of these things. And so as he went and as, as Jesus went and assumed his position at the table where he would recline to eat with all the guests, everybody else in the room saw how Jesus was dissed by their, by their host. It was funny. When, when, back in the days when I was working with the Rams, we had to... Coach Chuck Knox, he, liked to, he, he always wanted to keep up with the younger guys, and that was a word that came out back in the 80s, you know, diss, you know, disrespect and stuff. And he'd be in the room, and he'd be saying, you know what, don't let your opponent diss you guys. Don't let them diss you like that. And guys were just cracking up, laughing, you know, trying to bite their lip so they didn't say anything. But finally, one guy goes, hey, Coach, it's not dish, it's diss. <laughs> and, uh, and then he cut him. <laughs> See, he, he wanted to teach him about, you know, this is a, it's not, don't be disrespecting, but it's like, man, you just dissed your coach in front of the whole team, man. It's like, what, are you crazy? So anyway, that was a pretty funny story. But, um, <laughs> but it just reminds me every time I think about that, you know, this guy just, you know, he showed utter contempt and disrespect for Jesus, and everybody in the room knew it. And not only that, wealthy people had a courtyard, an inner courtyard, all around the exterior. Anybody that was out on the street that day could come and stop and look into the courtyard and see what was going on and overhear the conversations. So there was a whole bunch of people that had heard that Jesus was invited, and with his reputation, they wanted to see and hear what he'd have to say. Plus, now there's this confrontation that's taking place with a host who is being rude in front of everybody, not only the guests, but all the onlookers. And it makes for quite an interesting confrontation, as we see taking place here. The first thing that we're introduced to are the actions of the woman. This sinful woman, if you look at verses uh, 37 and 38, we're told, and behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. The first thing that we learn about this woman is of her reputation. If you'll see it on the outline, we're told that she is a sinner. Forty-seven times in the New Testament, this word is used in this instance specifically referring to sexual sin or that of prostitution. This woman is a prostitute who now comes to the house and the exclamatory phrase where it says, and look a woman, or and behold, some translations like the New American Standard says, and behold, there was a woman. Basically what it was saying was like this, look, there's a woman. And not any woman, but a woman who had a reputation in the community, a woman that people knew who she was, a woman who worked the streets, a woman who made her living by selling her body. They said, and look, there's a prostitute. Look at that woman. What is going on here? Everything we heard about this guy must be true. He associates with sinners. He hangs out with harlots and sinners, drunkards and thieves. What is up with this guy? There's a, there's a conflict that's happening here between this woman who is recognized as the worst of society and a man who has recognized himself as the best of society. 
He's self-acclaimed righteous man. And there is a conflict that's taking place here. The lowest end of the social spectrum and the self-appointed highest end. And I'm telling you, this is a very dramatic confrontation. And the question in everybody's mind was, how is this going to play out? What's going to happen here? What's going on? It's important to note that open courtyard, as I mentioned, where people could see what was happening. And they saw it all. Not only did they see the disrespect of the one uh, of the host, but they also saw as Jesus leaned against his, his left arm at the table and his feet were behind him, every person in that courtyard behind Jesus saw one thing that was glaringly different about Jesus than every, every, every other guest. Every other pair of feet was washed clean and his was filthy dirty. And they saw it. And they wondered what was going to happen. How is Jesus going to respond to this? How is he now going to respond to this woman who had this reputation? And the next thing that's pointed out to us is the repentance of this woman. Notice that she learned that he was reclining at the table. She heard that Jesus was already there. She heard what had happened. She heard of the disrespect of this host. Someone ran to her and said, Jesus is at Simon's house and you should see what Simon did. He didn't greet him. He didn't hug him. He didn't kiss him. He didn't wash his feet. He didn't anoint him with oil or wipe his forehead with oil. Man, you know what? He went down to every person in that row on the airplane and handed him the little, you know, the little moist towelette and skipped the guy in seat A, you know, whatever. That's exactly what happened. I mean, can you imagine sitting on an airplane? Everybody gets a moist towelette. You're sitting there and they just pass right over you. Uh, uh. Everybody heard. And she heard, and she responded. Notice her tears. She stood behind Jesus, and she saw what had been done, and she wept. The word weeping is used 40 times, and it's the same word that's used of Peter, who wept after denying knowing Jesus. He was convicted of his sin and of his failure, and he broke down, and he wept bitterly, the Bible says. He was so broken for his failure and that of, you know, uh, of denying Jesus. And Jesus said, you're going to deny me. Oh, no, I won't deny you. You will before the crow three times. You know, you're going to deny me. The rooster crows three times. Oh, oh, and he did. And he remembered the words and they penetrated his heart and he was broken and contrite. And the Bible says that this woman was broken and contrite. And the question that was on my mind is one that's really important, and I love the lyrics of the song that was sung today because it's biblically, theologically, doctrinally sound. And that is this. She was broken and she had repented at a point in past, past time. Your sins have been forgiven. They were forgiven in a past moment of time. And the question that we all have in our mind is, when was she broken of her sin? When did she repent? When did she come to Jesus when he said, hey, listen, maybe it was the day he said, come to me, all of you who are brokenhearted and weary, and I'll give you rest. Come to me now. And she probably came to him now. Because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. She heard the invitation. She accepted his invitation. She was born again in a moment in time. She became a child of God in that instance when her heart was broken for her sin. She repented of her sin and she turned to Christ for forgiveness. And he said, all who come to me, I will no ways cast out. The Bible says, whosoever calls upon the name or the authority of Jesus Christ to forgive sin, they shall be saved. She was saved at that moment in time. You and I are saved at that moment in time when we're broken for our sin, when we're confronted by our own sinfulness and we repent and we turn to God for forgiveness. The Bible says at that moment in time that we receive him as our savior, that we are saved. Born again by the will of God, not even by our own efforts or actions. It's all of God. By grace, we're saved through faith. This woman had come to trust in Jesus Christ. And it's obvious from this account that her, re- her repentance occurred prior to her attendance at this dinner party. And we notice the response that she gave to Jesus. Her, re- her response clearly demonstrated the sorrow of seeing Jesus so disgracefully treated by Simon. You know, when we look at this and we see what is going on, it thrust her forward to do him honor in spite of what anybody else thought of her. 
You know, it was as if she waited long enough for someone else to step up and make right the wrong that had been suffered and no one else would do it. No one else around the dinner party. No one else on the onlookers or the bystanders. No one else stepped up and said, what you just did to that man is wrong and disrespectful. Come here and let me wash your feet. Let me anoint your face and wipe it with oil. Let me give you a greeting of kiss and welcome. Nobody else did it. She did. And you know why she did it? Because she had a great love for Jesus. That's why she did it. You know, how does a response indicate genuine repentance and and that her forgiveness by God was real, it was legitimate, it was biblically sound? And you know how we know it? We know it by her actions. How How do you know if you've genuinely been born again? How do you know if you've really become a child of God by the will of God? How do you really know that? I'll tell you how you know it. We all can know it by your actions. By how we live our life, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That as James says, that you know what, faith without works is dead. People that say, oh yeah, I've trusted in Christ. Oh yeah, I'm born again. Then live like they want to. That's that's in contrary or contrast to the expressed will of God. Maybe deceiving themselves. You, You and I cannot live a life of disobedience by God if we're truly born again and the Spirit of God lives within us without inner torment and torture going on. Why are you doing that? What you're doing is not right. You know it's not right. Confess your sin, agree with God, repent from it, and live in a manner worthy of your calling. If you really know Christ, you'll be tortured every time you do something that's wrong before God. And I pray that that is true of each of your lives. Because it is a sign that you have come to faith in Christ. Those who are not convicted of sin do not know God who lives within because he can't live in a dirty house. This woman, you know, it was beautiful. Her reputation did not keep her from coming to Jesus. And I just want to share with you and challenge you to consider that, you know what? I don't care how bad someone is. That should never be an excuse to not come to Jesus. I don't care what you've done in your life. I don't care how awful and heinous you think it is before God. Let me tell you something. That's exactly why Jesus died on the cross for you. And don't you ever keep someone else from coming to Jesus because their reputation precedes them. And I'll tell you why. But for the grace of God, go you and I. The point is, is that her reputation didn't keep her from coming to Jesus because she heard clearly his invitation was this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't come. He didn't say come unto me, all you who think you're okay, but you're just missing something in your life. He didn't say that at all. He said, come to me, all, whosoever will, everyone, anyone, No matter what you've done, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how bad you think you are, there's one thing that's common, we're all bad. And we're going to see that in a moment. He said, and I will give you rest. We know her forgiveness is real because we see that she expressed profound gratitude and humility. Don't miss what she did. She stood behind him. She had an alabaster vial of perfume that she had around her neck. That was on a, on, a, on a, not a chain, but on a piece of leather, a strap of leather. She wore it around her neck. And I want you to notice, it says that, and she brought that alabaster vial of perfume with her. She knew what she was going to do when she got there. But when she saw what had happened to Jesus, I don't think she had planned to be broken and weep at his feet. She was going to wash his feet. And when she saw what had happened, she was broken of heart. And she began to weep bitterly at the disrespect that was shown to the God of this universe in Jesus. And she wept. And it says that, and she stood behind him at his feet, those dirty, grimy feet that were dirty and grimy and nobody else's in that row were dirty at all. And she began to weep. She began to wet his feet with her tears that fell. And she knelt down and she kept wiping them with the hair of her head, which was a, a, a the, the woman's glory was her hair. 
And a sign of absolute disrespect in public was for any woman to let her hair down. And she let her hair down because she couldn't think of anything else to do because no one ran and said, here, you can use this towel. And his feet were wet from her tears and the dirt and the mud started to flow. And she wanted to clean his feet and she knelt down and wiped them with her hair. And if that didn't show enough humility, she began to kiss his feet. And the Bible says, and she was kissing his feet, meaning that she kissed and she kissed and she kissed and she kissed them. She couldn't kiss them enough. And I couldn't help but think of Mary, who sat at the feet of Jesus while Martha was so worried about getting dinner ready. And she sat at his feet and Jesus said, you know, she has chosen the best because I'm only with you for a short time when she has her priorities straight. And she knelt at the feet of Jesus and learned what he had to share. And this woman knelt at the feet of Jesus and and washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed them unashamedly, unashamedly. And you know what? She wanted Jesus to know how much she loved him. And you know why she could love Jesus? Because he first loved her. We love him Because he first loved us. Are you ashamed of your love for Jesus? I wonder how many other people were there that day that had come to know the same forgiveness that she did, but were ashamed in front of everybody else to demonstrate that love. Folks, I'm here to tell you something. You will never go wrong loving Jesus. You just won't. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Because there's one thing that we know about Jesus that the rest of the world doesn't. And that he's the savior of the world. The only way to be rectified with God. Where else can we go? No one else has the words of eternal life. And because he died on the cross for you and me, because he was resurrected from the dead, because he's alive today, he can offer forgiveness. And one day you and I will stand before him. And you know what? And it won't matter what anybody else ever thought. It won't matter what anybody else ever said. Don't ever be ashamed of loving Jesus. See, she wasn't. And it reminded me so much of Zacchaeus. You know, when he was touched by Jesus, he ran out ahead of everybody, jumped up in a tree, and everybody made fun of him. And you know what? He could have cared less what anybody else thought. He came down, and you know, he said, since I've been ripping people off, Lord, you know I have. I'm going to return it to him fourfold. That's what I'm going to do. How do we know that he loved Jesus? Because his actions demonstrated he was a new man in Christ. His heart was changed. And Jesus said, that affirmation that you know you've done wrong and that you want to make it right, you know what? Today, salvation has come to your house, my brother. And you're a son of Abraham. Isn't that great? The question I have for you is this, is that how how does your love for Jesus translate into the world in which you live? And is it evident and is it obvious as this woman's love was for Jesus that day before that crowd? Can't be ashamed of the gospel, friends. For it's the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. Anyone and everyone who will believe, whosoever. See, Jesus wasn't put off by the woman's fleshly sins. When she came to him, she sensed nothing of the judgmentalism of the self-righteous one who was hosting the party. He received her as she came to him in faith and repentance and now received her acts of love and of gratitude. She had an attitude of gratitude and Jesus was more than happy to welcome it. And I got great news for you. Jesus, our creator and redeemer has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the one who loved and forgave her is the same one who loves and forgives us. Isn't that great? See, up to this point in the narrative, I want you to notice that there hasn't been a word spoken yet. And what a powerful sermon has already been preached. There isn't a word spoken But that's all about the change, and we're going to see it as we look at verse 39, as we look at the attitude of a self-righteous Pharisee. Notice in verse 39, we read these words. Now, when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, 
He said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this, this per- person, this woman is, who's touching him, that she's a sinner. Notice he's sitting there and he's thinking this as all this is going on. You know, if this guy was really a prophet, he'd certainly know who this woman was, what kind of woman she was. And the word for touch is very interesting because it is a word that has specific, significant meaning. The word to touch in biblical language is used on occasion for sexual intercourse. You'll see that in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, where it says, Now it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of sexual immorality that was just explained in the previous passage in chapter 6, but because of sexual immorality, let each woman have her own husband, let each man have his own wife. And the word that he's using is the same word, and that's not what was intended here at all, but Simon's use of this word in this context has clear sexual overtones. He is affirming that in his opinion... It is all very improper, and Jesus, if he really were a prophet, would know who she was and would refuse this attention from such a woman. What he is saying is, is that he is allowing and giving her respect because he has allowed her to touch him. His righteousness would have been kick her to the side of the curb. Continue to flaunt her, continue to flaunt her sin before her face or rub her nose in it. Don't ever let her forget how far she had fallen on the, social, on the social ladder or scale of things. Just keep rubbing it in her face. That was his attitude. That somehow he was better than her and she was such a lowly, miserable sinner that, you know what, who was God, who was this prophet who would even let somebody like that touch him? And I want you to notice the answer of Jesus and listen. It's to Simon's thoughts. I love that. I love that. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that sometimes? You know, you ever heard those conversations where you run into somebody and they look at you and they start to say things, but you know that there's got to be something else they're thinking behind it. It's like, oh, I just wish I knew what you were thinking right now while you just tell me all these things that I know you don't really mean. And that's not even what you're thinking. Hey, how you doing? It's good to see you. Oh, praying for you. <laughs> praying you die. <laughs> you know, and you're just going, oh, well, that's great. Thank you very much. You know, and I, I read this and I love this, man, because it's beautiful because everything's open and bare, laid bare to him to whom we have to do. All of our thoughts are transparent before God. So, you know what? Just give it up and be honest with God, man, because he knows your heart and your thoughts anyway. And what he did was he answered him. The answer of Jesus is incredible. He answered Simon's thoughts, which, by the way, is another clear understanding of the deity of Jesus. Only God can know our thoughts. And Jesus knew his thoughts. And the Bible clearly teaches that. So, you know, there's affirmation all through Scripture that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. This is another example of that. And and he said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. For understanding, uh, denarii was about a day's wages. So one person owed 500 days worth of work, wages that they would get for 500 days of work. Think about that for a second. You know, we get notices often by child support of garnishment of wages and, you know, and, and they will only let, let us withhold 50% of, you know, net, you know, livable wages. And, and I think, wow, can you imagine where you've got 500 days wages that you owe and if, you know, by our standard, you only let somebody withhold 50% of the net of those things, you know, how long would it take you to pay that off? And we, have got, we had guys, seriously, that when they would get notified that they would owe these, these wages, they'd just quit. And they'd go find, you know, somewhere else to work until the system catches up with again. You know, we want to just drop kick people like that. But at the same time, um, you know, that just is a reality. And we're looking at this and I'm thinking, man, can you imagine? This is 500 days wages. The other person owed 50 days wages. But nonetheless, you know, there's a debt. And he said when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. And he said, which of them before, which of them therefore will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Now, the answer of Jesus 
is what everybody in the place has been waiting for, this confrontation. And while what he's saying is this, we live in a world today where some people say, you know what, on a scale of 1 to 500, I'm only a 50 sinner. That person's a 500 sinner. On the scale of 1 to 500, on a bad day, I'm a 100 sinner. But, you know, when you look at the curve, I'm still doing pretty good. That person's a 450 sinner. And we all have in our mind what makes a person a 5 sinner or a 10 sinner, 50 or 100 or 200 or 500. We, we all have in our mind what that is. But I want you to notice something that he says. That, number one, they're all sinners. They're all debtors. They all owe And that's what God says of you and me. We're all sinners. We're all debtors. We all owe. We come into the world. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous. No, not one. A very specific group of people. All of us. And we all owe. Now, what he also says is this. And when they were unable to repay, meaning this. None of us can repay. We are all unable to repay. Now what happens in the world that we live in, in the world that I associate and the people I discuss things with, we come up with a currency system on our own that we think God has to accept. It's like going to a foreign country with U.S. currency and they say that money's really no good here unless you exchange it for something that is. Got it? We all come to God and we say, you know what, God, let me give you uh, my currency. My currency is I have integrity. I'm in the construction industry and God, you know there are a whole bunch of people in the construction industry who are just liars, cheats, and thieves. And I have integrity, and therefore, you will accept the currency of integrity that while everybody else in in this business or everybody else in this company are a bunch of liars, cheats, and thieves, I try to do the best I can to do what's right. Therefore, you will accept my currency of integrity. And God says, no, I won't. Because even when you think you haven't lied, cheat, or stolen, you know what? You have at some point in your life. And I can demonstrate it to you. And as soon as you start thinking that way, you go, oh, yeah, I remember that. Never mind. (laughs) And then we come up with some new currency. Then we come up with the currency of maybe domestic currency. And the domestic currency goes something like this. You know, Lord, I've always been faithful to my spouse. I know a whole bunch of guys. I've worked in professional sports for 20 years. I know a whole bunch of guys that haven't been. I know people at work who haven't been. I know people in our family haven't been. I know people in our neighborhood haven't been. And wow, look at me. Take my domestic currency. And God goes, you know what? Have you ever thought about cheating on your wife? <sighs> what? Well, you know, as Jesus said, hey, if you lust after a woman in your heart, haven't you committed adultery? I mean, if you're thinking about somebody other than your spouse, guess what? Your heart's wrong before God. Uh, oh, well, hang on. Let me go back to my cash drawer of currency And how about, oh, how about social currency? Maybe, you know, I've given to this particular cause or that particular cause. I've run in a race for the cure. I've given money to the abused children's shelter. I've given all these clothes that I don't wear anyway, don't want anything to do with. I've given those to people in need. Wow, aren't I a great person? We're really giving, you know. And uh, so, you know, I've done all these things. The guy goes, no, won't accept that either. And then we pull out, you know, what we think is kind of the, the trump card. God, I'm pulling out my church currency. I've been going to church, singing in the choir, sitting in the front or back row. (laughs) You know, writing out that tithe check. Hey, even gave to the vision fund. Way to go. How about that? And he goes, no. Nothing. You are unable to repay. Period. Done. What do we have to exchange? Nothing. But faith and trust that what God says is true. That he loves us. And even when we're in rebellion against him, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. The only thing that you and I have to offer God is a broken and contrite heart, which God will never despise. We have nothing. 
And he said to Simon, which of these 500 or 50 sinners, when they were forgiven of their debt, would love more? And Simon answered correctly, the one who has been forgiven more. The one who has been forgiven more. And I want you to notice the application that Jesus makes to them and to us is found in verses 44 through 47, where he says, And turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see her? Take a good hard look at her. Look at this woman, is what he's saying. Look at her. Look at her. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to her, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves a little. Notice what he said. He noticed the disrespect. The crowd noticed the disrespect. And Jesus waited for the right moment to reveal the fact that he recognized how disrespectful he was being treated. And he used her and said, look, she kissed my feet. And I want you to notice something here. Kissing his feet was greater humility than kissing his cheek. Tears were more precious than well water to wash his feet. And perfume was more expensive than the common oil that was used to wipe a face. She understood the depth of her depravity, her hopeless state, like the leper or the widow of Nain and the dead son or friends of the man who couldn't walk that lifted him up on the roof of the house and put him down into the center of the building. Only Jesus could heal and only Jesus could forgive. And she loved Jesus because he first loved her. And it is a fact that some of the greatest sinners, after being forgiven, have gone on to become the greatest of God's saints. And the reason is simple. Because their lives were lived out in an attitude of gratitude. Saul of Tarsus was the worst of the worst who persecuted God's church and stood at hearty approval when Stephen was martyred for, being, for not being ashamed of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul was used greatly by God to write most of the New Testament and to transform his world. But you know why? Because he loved much. And the reason that he loved much is because later in life he wrote to Timothy and said, You know what? Let me tell you something. I once thought I was a chief apostle. And the closer I get to Jesus, I realize that I'm the foremost of God's sinners. I'm the worst of the worst. I'm lower than a worm. The closer I get to God, the more I realize how much I've been forgiven. And he loved much. Read 2 Corinthians 11, and it chronicles how much he paid a price to follow Jesus. The shipwrecks and the beatings and being left for dead and the imprisonment and all that he endured for Christ's sake. He said, you know what? I'm the chief of all sinners, and I can't love him enough because now I'm starting to realize how much I've been forgiven. Francis of Assisi said this, There is nowhere a more wretched and a more miserable sinner than I. Augustine, who wrote in, in his book of his conviction of sin, he lived for ten years with a girlfriend and had a child out of wedlock. He repented of that sin and he trusted in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection for his own forgiveness. And he became one of the greatest theologians of the early church. Consider John Newton who would go on to write Amazing Grace after being touched by Jesus, after years of being what we would call in our terminology a party animal and also a slave trader. But when he was born again, he went on to write one of the greatest songs and hymns that the church has sung since, Amazing Grace. I once was blind and now I see. Man, I was lost and now I'm found. I was dead in my sins and now I'm alive to God. And the closer I get to Jesus, the more wretched I realize that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul wrote. Who can set me free from this body of sin? Thanks be to, thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
See, the point is all who recognize the great forgiveness, their great forgiveness will live in great love towards God with a continuous attitude of gratitude, striving to do mighty deeds for His kingdom and for His glory. What can I do? How can I repay you for what you've done for me? It won't even begin to come up or measure up or come close. But the least I can do is I can go out fighting with my last dying breath, praising you for what you've done, living according to the life that you want me to do, that, that worthy of the, of, the, of the calling, that manner that you want me to live, so that there's no hypocrisy in my life, so that when people see me, they see a person who is genuinely be touched by Jesus and is born again. They can see what God can do to a heart, a heart that used to hate, a heart that was filled with anger, a heart that, you know, was, was a drunk or a thief or, or in sexual immorality, or a heart that thought he was just good, not even understanding how bad and lost we are. God, I want people to see what Jesus does when he takes a dead person and he raises them to the newness of life. It's a wonderful testimony by one of our own here the other day at that men's breakfast. A testimony that said, I want you guys to understand who I used to be. And I want you to see who I am today. And I want you to know the difference is Jesus. Period. Before, how, and after. Our lives should be divided into three distinct categories. Before we came to Christ, how we came to know Him, and what He's been doing in our life since that point in time. If any man's in Christ, the before is over. How we came to Christ and now what he's doing is all that really matters. Because we forget what lies behind, but what's going on today better be light, it better be salt, it better be a testimony of a heart who has been born again by God. This woman, man, we learn a lot from this woman. And I'm, I want to close with, with, with the, the, the kind of the summation of all of it. And that is the ability of Jesus to forgive sins. Notice, and he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who, who is this man who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Notice the ability of Jesus to forgive sins is because of who he is, God in human flesh. They said, but only God can forgive sins. That's right. And that's what he said. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to take up your pallet and walk. And he said, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, take up your pallet and walk. So the fact the guy walked was an indicator of the fact that his sins were also forgiven because he has the authority to do both. To say, walk and your sins are forgiven. Who is this man who can forgive sins? He's no man at all. He is God in human flesh because only God can forgive sins. And he categorically declared, your sins have been forgiven. Done. As far as the east is from the west, her sins were removed from her. They were like scarlet, and now he made them white as snow. Done. Done deal because of the power and the authority that God has to forgive sins. Done. On what basis were her sins already, past tense, point in time, forgiven? Don't miss this. For those who think you can work your way to heaven, he says, it's by your faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is your faith that has saved you. Your belief in the word of God has saved you. You're acting upon God's word to come unto me who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You're going to Jesus. The faith that he has the ability to forgive your sins is what has saved you. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. By faith, Abraham was declared righteous. By faith, you and I are declared righteous. And it's faith, not works. Because I want you to stop and think as we put this all together. God does all the work. He makes us aware of our sinfulness. He makes us aware of our need to repent. He makes us aware of the identity of Jesus as Savior. He makes us aware of our need to receive Him as Savior. 
and he raises us to newness of life. It's all him and not us. What is required of us? That we believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved. Have you entered into that new realm? Because notice what he says in verse 50. He says, go into peace. He's saying, you know what? Leave this life over here and go into the realm of peace that we have with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Leave the realm of sin and darkness and enter into the realm of God's kingdom, into God's holiness, into God's righteousness, into God's perfection, into light. We've gone from darkness to light. Enter into the realm of peace with God. There is no place better to be than into the realm of God's presence. From this I learned several things. The greater one's understanding of forgiveness, the greater one's love will be towards God. True? I've learned that we are to live with a continuous attitude of gratitude. And I will challenge you, and and I feel blessed that, that, that I am associated with people like you who on a regular basis have a smile on your face and recognize that God is in control. Recognize how blessed we are and have that attitude of gratitude. But I will challenge you on those days when you feel like complaining or moaning and groaning about these little simple, what I call speed bumps on the highway to heaven, that you will take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And instead of whining and complaining, that you'll think of one thing to praise Him for. Not just the week of thanksgiving, but every day is a day of thanksgiving for those of us who have been born again by the will of God. I learned from this passage that Jesus does notice neglect and he does appreciate devotion. He noticed the neglect of Simon. He called it out. He spelled it out. But he also noticed the devotion of the woman's acts of love. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 that God is not unjust to forget all of our works of love which we do towards him and towards God's people that one day he'll reward us. There's no act of devotion to Jesus that he won't recognize one day in his presence. So don't ever get frustrated doing good before God. When the world doesn't appreciate it, when people you're doing things for don't even say thank you, you know what? It doesn't matter. We're to keep on doing them because we're not doing it for them. We're doing it as an act of love to our Savior. And if they benefit from it, great. If they say thank you, it's a bonus. But you know what? We're to live that kind of life because we've got attitudes of gratitude. The question is, in closing, are we giving him a welcome reception in our lives Or are we rudely keeping him waiting as he stands at the door of our hearts and knocks? He noticed neglect. He values adoration. There's another scene which is different from this one in case some of you are troubled by that or were wondering. But it reveals the same truth. Later in the gospel accounts, uh, Mary of Bethany anoints his feet under the shadow of the cross. And Judah said, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pieces of of silver or given to the poor? And all all said the same thing. Yeah, why'd you waste this money? And it was unanimous. And Jesus rebuked them sharply and said, let her alone. For my bearing, she did it. He valued it. And the aroma of the nard that day filled the house. And the same thing happened this day. And also again on that later occasion. And it was a sweet thing to the heart of Jesus. Jesus went to Simon's house to expose him to God's love. And Simon was blind to the woman and blind to himself. He saw her past and Jesus saw her future. And I wonder how many rejected sinners have found salvation through the testimony of this woman in Luke's gospel. She encourages us to believe that Jesus can take any sinner 
and make him or her into a child of God. But his forgiveness is not automatic. We can reject his grace if we will. In 1830, a man named George Wilson was arrested for mail theft, the penalty for which was hanging. After a time, President Andrew Jackson gave Wilson a pardon, but this man refused to accept it. And the authorities didn't know what to do. Should he be freed or should he be hanged? So they consulted Chief Justice at the time, John Marshall, who handed down this decision. He wrote, A pardon is but a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no longer a pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. And I thought, isn't that true? God has offered every person a pardon. And a pardon means absolutely nothing but an opportunity to be forgiven of our sins by our Creator. And He has offered you a pardon. He has offered me a pardon. And the only way we can take advantage of that pardon is to accept it and to accept Him to accept His love, to accept His grace, to accept His mercy, to accept His Son's death upon the cross, His resurrection, and to accept Him into our life as our Lord and Savior. Have you taken advantage of the pardon, or is it still being extended? If still being extended, you better act now, because a pardon rejected is no pardon at all. Father, thank You for this time to be together. We thank You for the power of Your Word. And the simplicity, yet the depth of this woman's love for Jesus. God, I pray right now, if there's any who are here that have been extended God's pardon and have not received it, that they would not continue to reject it. For a pardon not acted upon at all is a rejection. God, I pray that those who hear these words would be broken and contrite of heart, recognizing that their debt, whether 50 or 500, they're unable to pay it because there's no currency that God accepts other than the death of His Son on the cross and the power of His resurrection to restore life and to give eternal life. God, I pray that all of us would enter into the realm of Your peace through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.